The Deal Lawyer Podcast with John Andrews, powered by JMW Solicitors. Hello and welcome to the Deal Lawyer Podcast. I'm John Andrews. I'm pleased to say that today I'm joined by Claire Brown from our commercial litigation team, who's going to talk to us all about the thorny topic of warranty claims. Welcome to the podcast, Claire. Ah, hi. Thanks very much, John. Pleased to be here. Great. So this is one of the rare areas where where my my particular specialism crosses over with yours. (laughs) Um, So just gives a sort of flavour to to the podcast and, and the background, really. In, in the context of any mergers and acquisitions deal, whether it's a, a share purchase or an asset purchase contract, um, you will find that a large part of that document is taken up by uh, warranties and possibly indemnities. So, so Claire, can you just explain what, what, what a warranty is? Yeah, so a warranty is an assurance or promise given in a contract by one party to another. Um, You will see them in all manner of contracts, but obviously we are looking at them here with a specific focus on on business sales, whether that be sales of of shares or, or assets. And the idea behind them is is really this principle when you're acquiring property of of buyer beware or caveat emptor. And obviously that puts an onus on the purchaser of of a business to conduct their own due diligence to find out everything they possibly can about a company. But in the real world, you know, with the best will in the world, you can never find everything out about the, the company in question. And so warranties have effectively been introduced as a way to guard against the risks of that information that you just can't get to the bottom of effectively. Okay. And sort of in terms of the types of areas that these warranties cover, I mean, typically what what, what do you come across when when you're looking at these contracts? Yeah, so I obviously see the aftermath, really, um, (laughs) when it's it's gone wrong. Um, So you'll obviously see warranties across any number of of matters, and they can often be very sector-specific, depending on the nature of the business in question. But I think where I see the most disputes arising around warranties, there's probably two categories maybe three albeit there's crossover between them but I would say the first one I I see a lot of disputes arising out of is in respect of warranties given as the financial position of a company Um, and the second area is is really in relation to contractual arrangements and so with regard to the former that the financial position you will often see, I mean, I'm, I'm, you're fully aware of these things, uh, there'll often be warranties in there warranting uh, the truth uh, or the sort of fairness, as it were, of the latest accounting information that's provided. Yeah. Um, they, that there'll be assurances that those accounts are, are accurate, that they've been prepared in accordance with normal accounting principles, 
um, that there's no sort of unusual or exceptional items in there that might skew um, any year's figures. So you'll you'll see assurances given in relation to that snapshot of the last sort of audited accounts that are there. But then there's very often a bit of a time lag, as you'll appreciate, between the last set of audited accounts and any transaction completing. And so obviously a purchaser needs to be reassured that there's not been any material adverse change between those last audited accounts and the um the, the position as at the date of acquiring the company. Yeah, and, and, oh, and quite often, I think, um, in addition to having a warranty specifically, which covers that period, um, we quite often ask for, for management accounts to be produced, which cover the period from the end of the last audited accounts up to the date or probably the month before that we complete the deal. Yeah. And again, yeah. we ask for those to be warranted to a certain degree as well. Yeah, but obviously management accounts aren't as reliable as fully audited accounts, um, are they? So obviously they're better than, than nothing um, and you will still seek those uh, those assurances, but you've not had the input necessarily as to the same degree of, of the accountants in auditing them. So you will see warranties that go further than warranting the management accounts in terms of there not being any significant changes in the way that the business has been run, that it's been continued in the same fashion. There haven't been any losses of material customers or, or issues in the supply chain, that that sort of thing. Just to reassure a purchaser as much as you can really that things are continuing as as per the snapshot in, in time that they've previously seen. Yeah. Um, I, I just said a bit earlier, I think that the the two areas that give the biggest cause for concern, certainly post-completion, can be the accounts um, and these contractual arrangements, as, as you say. Um, so if there, if there is a breach of warranty, what, what does that actually mean? Uh, so if, if there's a breach of warranty, it, it essentially means that one of these assurances or promises that has been given isn't actually true. And that's on the face of it will give rise to a claim for breach of warranty. And that will be a claim for damages, uh, effectively, as sum of money. And, and as you say, in terms of a claim for damages, quite often in the context of a deal, we spend a lot of time negotiating around how these damages are, are calculated and when you can bring a claim. So, for example, we will negotiate clauses which relate to um, de minimis values of particular claims, um, time periods within which they have to be notified, um, and once they've been notified, whether you have a particular time in which to issue proceedings. Is that something you come across in, in the course of your field? Yes. The timing in particular, I think, is crucial when you're dealing with warranty claims because, like you say, John, very often there is quite a tight time frame within which to bring a claim for breach of warranty. Um, and those time frames are applied strictly by the courts. 
Um, very often they're less than 12 months. No doubt for you know, certainty in, in a seller's eyes, they, they don't want these things coming out of the woodwork six years down the line, but it does create some urgency on the part of, of a purchaser to get into the nitty gritty of a business when they take it over to make sure that there aren't any skeletons in, in the closet. And if they do become aware of, of potential grounds for breach of warranty, they do unfortunately need to crack on in investigating whether there is any real meat in, in that claim. Because nine, 12 months, whatever the, the time limit is, might seem like a long time in, in the outside world. But in legal terms, that, that time does pass quite quickly with the investigative work that you need to undertake. And that that time limit will generally be a time limit to physically issue and serve proceedings. And so there's a quite a bit of work that has to go into that process. And no one really wants to have to actually issue and serve proceedings. They'll want to try and have some sort of correspondence with the, the, the seller to see if they can actually reach terms without having to take that, that step. So Yes, time limits in particular, very important. There's there's often a, a specific procedure laid down in the, the, the SPA as to potentially having to notify as soon as you become aware of a potential circumstance giving rise to one of these claims. And there'll be provisions in there as to service and, and that sort of thing in the event that you you do actually notify of a claim and they again they must be followed strictly okay. really um okay so to sort of if i simplify it um from a, an m a point of view and, and tell me if i'm wrong about this the kind of default position generally speaking for a breach of contract claim which is what a warranty claim is 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 six years um yeah in, in the course of sort of the deals that we do, typically you will agree a period of somewhere between six six months and two years um, yeah. for bringing a, a breach of contract claim. So that reduces that period of time down pretty significantly. Yeah. And I guess the one exception to that, generally speaking, is tax. So in the, in, in the in the when we're looking at tax and when those claims have to be bought. Conversely, we extend that time a little bit beyond six years and extend that to seven. And the reason we do that is because the taxpayer can go back for a six-year period. So you want that <laughs> extra year. So, so they can go up as well as yeah. down. But the key thing is the start, yeah. if you think you've got a claim, is looking at the contract to see what limitations have been placed. And I should also add that in the event that something fraudulent has gone on, then often the limitation limit won't actually apply then yeah. um, the scope to get around it in those circumstances. But on the face of it, generally speaking, you do need to get on with these claims if you think you've you've got one. Great. Okay. And then in addition to the time limits, as I, go, as I said previously, I think we it's common for us to put in de minimis levels in terms of the individual value of each claim and then needing a basket of those claims before you can you can pursue a claim. Is that is that is that something you commonly come across? Yes. I think most of, of our clients are fairly commercial. So the de minimis provisions generally are pretty de minimis. And so I think clients just accept that they'll have to suck those sorts of figures 
up. Uh, I think what bites more in the terms of the work that I do are more the, the caps on, on liability, the upper limits that these agreements impose, yeah. which, as you know, are often linked to the actual amount of consideration being paid. Um, and again, they are applied strictly by, by the courts um, and you do see them work in, in practice. Um, normally in approaching the assessment of damages, what, what the court is trying to do is to put a purchaser in the position they would have been in had the warranty um, been, been true. So the court will compare the value of the company as warranted as against the value of the company as is, is, is the terminology, but it's effectively what was the true value of that company. So sometimes actually that gap can be bigger than the consideration paid, albeit normally the starting point for assessing the, the value of the company as warranted is the consideration paid, but it's not necessarily the case. And so those caps can be quite effective in, in stemming a, a seller's liability. If, if the issue of a warranty claim arises, first we have to decide whether the financial is worthwhile pursuing. Yeah. Um, but, but in assessing that, it's not quite straightforward as I understand it as saying, well, you know, you, you've lost X amount of pounds, so that's the value of your claim. I, I think you have to, again, tell me if I'm wrong, you have to say, well, what impact has that had on, on, on the value of the shares? If we look at the share purchase, on the value of the shares themselves. So it's a, it's a slightly more complex process than just saying there's a breach of warranty, I've suffered a loss, and that's what my loss is. Loss is. It's a far more technical process to it. Would that be right? Yeah. That that is right. It is you you approach the calculation of damages in a warranty claim slightly differently to what you would in a normal breach of contract scenario. And the, the court is very much looking at the point in time that the the SBA was entered into, and they are looking at the value, the loss is deemed to crystallise at that point in time. And it's the difference between the value of the company as warranted, i.e. what it should have been, um, as against what it actually was. And you will need to get accountancy uh, evidence in order to establish what those two values are. And if there's not actually a difference between them, then there's no loss and, and therefore your claim will, will fall away. Um, but generally speaking, obviously, if you're going down this route, there will be a significant difference there, albeit you'll always have one expert saying one set of figures and, and another expert on the other side saying a completely different set of figures. And it's up to the judge then to, to decide where, where it falls. Okay, so in terms of the of the process of bringing a warranty claim, can you just sort of talk us through what, what, what the life cycle is? Yeah, so fortunately, the vast majority of these claims don't actually go all the way to a trial in, in the court system, um, but they will all start in, in the same way. They will start with sometimes just a more loose notification uh, from the purchaser to the seller, 
But at some point, once you've got your ducks in a row, you will issue a letter of claim, uh, the purchaser to the seller, obviously. And then the seller will have some time to investigate those allegations, admit or deny them. And then really, because of the time limits involved in having to, to prosecute these claims, a decision will have to be made pretty soon thereafter whether the purchaser wants to, in fact, issue proceedings. And then uh, that will have to be done within whatever the time limits are within the SPA. And then once you're in the court system, it's like any other claim then. Um, you know, there'll be particulars of claim, there'll be a defence, there'll be some sort of case management which will involve the disclosure of documents, witness statements, expert evidence, and then ultimately a trial. Um, but if you get into trial, they are going to be a good at least 12 months down the line, probably longer if, if we're looking at a chunky claim here. But at any point, the parties are encouraged to settle and try and agree terms of proceedings to avoid that trial because, like I've, I've said here, you know, you can get very different views from, from experts and or anything can happen at, at trial. It is an unpredictable process. <laughs> <laughs> That last two minutes just just brought me out in a cold sweat. Quite many most of the listeners to this podcast will come up without a type of sweat, which in many ways is a good thing. I mean, my my sort of simplistic view of, of these types of claims is it's warranties are important. They have their place. They give you the reassurance that you're looking for, and they're they're an incentive on on, on the seller to to disclose what they should do about the business. Absolutely, but but, yeah. but, but in reality. Unless you've got a fairly chunky warranty claim, nine times out of ten, it's not going to be economic to be taking this to court because the the, the costs are going to the cost of the time are going to probably far exceed the value of what's being claimed. Would that be a fair fair assessment? Yeah, you've always got to be mindful, in, like in any claim, um, you've got to do that sort of cost-benefit analysis yeah. and feed into that the the risk that. that you know, very, very, very seldom do you get a nailed on plane. There's always going to be some argument about something in there. And these claims are expensive. And so you're right, really, unless you're arguing over, you know, a million pounds plus, uh, you, you, disproportionality does start to become an issue in, in terms of the cost versus what, what you're arguing about. Yeah, which, which I guess then goes back to, to what you put in the contracts at, at the outset, whether there's some form of ADR, alternative dispute resolution yep. process, you know, yep. whether it's an accountant, a barrister. And, and again, we try to get those into the agreements just to avoid this process of them yeah. to go to court. Um, there, there is, of course, another way to sort of try to protect yourself financially in, in, in the contractual terms by, by including indemnities. Could you tell us a little bit about what they are and how they differ from warranties? Indemnities work slightly differently um, because indemnities generally provide for pound for pound compensation in respect of a, a specifically identified loss. So you're not having to do an analysis then um, on sort of the impact on the value of the price paid for the business. It's it's much easier to, to ascertain Um 
an indemnity is effectively the, the seller saying that if this event happens, I will pay you X. So it's a very different approach and it should. <laughs> it should be easier to follow through to a conclusion. There should be less argument. As long as the indemnity bites, the, the figure payable should be quite easy to, to get to the bottom of. Yeah, I don't know if that's your experience. No, I think exactly. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of indemnities, and quite often they can get overlooked in in the whole process when people become wrapped up in pages and pages of warranty protection. Um, I mean, the obvious the obvious indemnities relation to tax and. Yeah. Uh, a big part of a share purchase agreement, for example, will be the tax covenant, which can go on for pages and pages. <laughs> but essentially, it's a pound for pound indemnity for any undisclosed tax liabilities. But going beyond tax, and this emphasizes, I think, the importance of a good due diligence process, is uh, are other areas that you cover. So, so employment claims, potential contractual claims that, 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 that you've identified. So but they can only they, they can only arise if you do a proper DD process, identify the issue, and say we want a pound for pound indemnity for that particular item. Yeah, absolutely. And you've touched on there the idea of of disclosure being used as a defence in in any of these warranty claims. So it obviously helps you identify where you can put suitable indemnities in, which is a very effective means of protecting a purchaser. But it also feeds into the the importance of of disclosures and understanding those disclosures as the purchaser of a business, because if they've been disclosed, it's inevitable that the warranties will have been caveated by reference to those disclosures, and that would then defeat a, a warranty claim yeah absolutely and, and that disclosure commonly nowadays uh, in the context of an MA deal takes takes two forms really you will have your in fact three forms you'll have your information request which you will get the responses to um and it's very common nowadays to accept those responses as being formal disclosures um second area of disclosure will be in the data room so again you set up a data room documents are uploaded and it's very common nowadays for all the documents or the majority of the documents put into that data room to be deemed disclosure against warranties. And then, of course, the final opportunity that the seller has to make a disclosure, and the most important one is in the in the context of the disclosure letter, which is uh, a formal document which uh, the, the lawyer usually drafts for the seller, responding, uh, commenting on each, uh, each warranty to confirm whether it's true or if it's untrue, if it is untrue, why it's untrue and what needs to be qualified. So that whole process, which takes time and and a bit of cost, um, but if you get it right at at the actual transaction stage, should save a lot of heartache at a later stage for the buyers and sellers if it's done properly. No, absolutely. I would agree 100% with that. One of the the things you do see see coming up in in defence to warranty claims is well, I disclosed it in the disclosure letter, but you see that some of those disclosures are so vague and wishy-washy and the court's view generally is, is it's got to be a sort of fair disclosure. It's got to allow a purchaser to make an informed decision off the back of it. So just saying, oh, we might have lost one or two contracts 
generally the court wouldn't say that's enough. You, you, there is an obligation to, to specify what the contract is, what, what that actually means for the business. Yeah. Um, and so it is, it, it is very important. And that is the benefit of the warranties in that it does hopefully encourage more open uh, disclosure by a seller. So, so in conclusion, Claire, I think where we've got to is this, is that um, save yourself a lot of pain and heartache if you can by negotiating hard if you're, if, if you're the buyer on your warranties, trying to get as many indemnities as you can rather than warranties. And if you're, if you're the seller, make sure you're, you're honest Disclose as much as you can and, and be upfront and frank about how truthful your accounts are. Um, just make sure you've got a comprehensive data room and make sure your disclosure letter contains everything that it should do in terms of making disclosures or qualifying the warranties. <laughs> <laughs> and, try and, and try and stay away from the litigation lawyers if you can. <laughs> yeah, but if you, can't, fair, if you can. <laughs> if you can't. Claire Brown of JMW is the person to be going to. And she's a real expert in this particular field. Anyway, Claire, thank you very much for joining us on the uh, podcast today. Oh, no. Thanks for having me. It's been good. If you would like to uh, follow up on anything we've discussed in this podcast, please do contact me by email, which is john.andrews at jmw.co.uk or by way of mobile telephone number 07768. 266036. Speak to you soon. The Deal Lawyer Podcast with John Andrews, powered by JMW Solicitors.